Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. We're going to talk about game design today because we think game design is cool and worth talking about. Today, we're going to talk about single player modes in fighting games. I'm Rowan, and with me today, I'm Blue. So, single player modes in fighting games. It's really important to establish why it's important to talk about this, because when you think about other genres, like FPSs, let's say, you have games like Overwatch, which are very successful without a single multiplayer, without a single single player mode in them. But it's important to consider that genres like that have games like Bioshock, which allow players to get comfortable with those genre conventions and mechanics. It's really important that players have a safe space to learn these things. And fighting games don't have these single player focused experiences. So it's important that in the core software, they have something for players to develop this with. I also think that in a fighting game, you have a lot of really cool mechanics, a lot of really cool complexity that comes with all of this interesting mechanics that you've made. And that there has to be some way to make a really cool single player experience out of that. That doesn't rely on you playing off of another person. I'm not sure we're there yet, but a couple of the games that we're going to be talking about today have taken a lot of like good steps towards that direction in my opinion and i really hope that in the few years we've got before this decade finishes that we do see a fighting game that tells a story that does something special that only a fighting game could do within its single player modes <laughs> now first up we're going to talk about is it the most recent game on this list Yes, it is. Tekken 7, which is the most recent entry in the very long-running Tekken series. And before we start talking about Tekken 7 single-player modes, I know in Australia, Tekken 7 is one of the more dominant fighting game forces. In your own home country, would you say that's the case? I am a little disconnected with the fighting game scene in my own country, but I do not believe Tekken 7 would be the big one there. It would either be one of the Capcom games or an anime fighter at this point, I think. Okay. And do forgive us, dear listeners, if you're not super familiar with terminology uh, relating to the fighting game community, the FGC. Uh, so to clarify, Capcom does games like Street Fighter or Marvel, Marvel vs. Capcom. And when we say anime fighter, we're referring to games typically from the developer Arc System Works, games like Guilty Gear, Blade Blue, stuff like that. There's a lot of anime fighters that are not developed by them, though. Very important to say as well, but a couple of the more recent prominent ones are from Arc System Works. Dragon Ball Fighters as well from Arc System Works. So we want to talk about Tekken 7 first because it has a really interesting story mode that you have a lot more experience with than me. Would you like to talk about why Tekken 7 story mode is really interesting and special? Absolutely. So again, small preface, I, we don't think that story mode is the only important thing for a single player experience. We want to talk about what the some of the games on this list do that aren't part of their story mode, that help players learn, that give players something interesting to do without uh, another player on the couch next to them. However, it is it is a personal belief of mine that you can tell some very cool and interesting stories with a fighting game engine. So Tekken 7 takes some very good steps towards this, and it's all in the small details, such as going from a transition of story and cutscene into a fight very quickly and seamlessly just cutting down that load time keeping the player completely immersed and involved in the action uh, going from an action sequence out of a cutscene into an action sequence into one into a fight for example a character kicks at another character in cutscene the fight starts with that and there's a forced hit someone takes damage off of that and you you demonstrate that through the in-game display 
the HUD, the heads up display, the life bars represent this damage that they take. Uh, doing quick time events before before a fight, after a cutscene, in order to present an advantage in the fight can also be one way of doing this. Tekken 7 is not the first one to do something like that, but it, they use that tool as well. So a lot of these kinds of small little things throughout the entire story mode that I think really drive home the fact that the player is playing this fighting game and getting this story experience out of it. Would you agree with what I've said so far? Definitely. In the amount that I watched, like it was really, the fights felt very directly connected to what was going on, as opposed to perhaps the more classical fighting game story where you're having a conversation and then the characters abruptly say, and let's fight about it yeah, or something. They tried to organically move characters along their story and then when it made sense for them to be in conflict, have a fight. Okay, so that's all really, really nice. One small side effect of the, doing it this way is honestly, characters don't come into conflict that often, even in most stories. So Tekken 7 story mode, while I think is uh, definitely a step in the right, right direction for like integrating narrative via gameplay, is honestly quite short. That's one small shortcoming of it. But I think it makes up for it with the amount of tricks it, it tries to use to tie in the ongoing story and narrative into the gameplay. So I gave a couple of examples already where a hit from cutscene transitions directly into a hit in combat. And that's how the round starts. The cutscene into quick time event into advantage in fight is another example. There is a relatively early sequence where the game just breaks genre for a fight. And I think you were also caught off guard by this happening. Yeah, I was watching a video of it and I was incredibly surprised by this moment that where one of the characters essentially starts playing Gears of War in the Tekken 7 engine. And when I say in the Tekken 7 engine, I don't mean like in a 2D fighter space, but I mean using uh, the same technical engine, they start playing a third-person shooter complete with proper aiming and reloading and things. It was quite bizarre. Like, it made sense in the story. The character leaps out of a car with a gun, and in a typical fighting game story, you'd expect him to throw the gun away and start using his hands and and feet to beat up the other uh his opponents but in this case he just we just go from cutscene into gameplay and he's still holding the gun and you're just able to shoot it and you, and the camera which is able to do this because it's a 3d engine is just over his shoulder now and i think it's really cool and that tekken 7 does this really early because i think like it's done a few clever things up to this point but it really communicates the player with this action i think that tekken 7 is willing to do what is best for what it wants to tell you and isn't willing and sorry and isn't going to just cop out and be lazy for the sake of using the easily available fighting mechanics they already have they want to do what's best for their story and that i think is a really special bit that helps you get more committed to it as well would you agree there yeah, I mean, if they're dedicated to giving you this experience, I can at least say, yeah, I'll see this through. And one of the things that I liked in like the attention to detail side of things is that for as much as I watched, everyone seems to speak in their own native language, except when it's specifically relevant to not do so. It's actually a little distracting how everyone will understand each other despite the fact that one person gives an order in Japanese, the subordinates answers in English, someone randomly off screen just makes a comment in Spanish. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's like very interesting flavor for the uh, for the world and the story that they're delivering. Especially when compared to things like Street Fighter, which are the World Warrior Tournament, where everyone conveniently speaks Japanese traditionally and nowadays English, it seems. Yeah, I mean, depending on what language settings you set to, they're just very, very good at speaking the same thing. 
I think that with the kind of story they tried to tell with Tekken 7, they could have gotten away without doing that because there are characters from Europe and there are a couple of characters from, honestly, not Japan or America, but not that many of them. And they really could have kept the cast within that small region and then kept the language thing and still felt right to the player, to the listener. But they didn't. They didn't shy away from that. They just said, oh, no, this character is someone that we want to bring into the story here it makes a lot of sense they're from I believe it's Spain Claudio I think he's a Spanish character I could be wrong about this uh, it might be Italian they just spoke the right language uh, I apologize for not remembering which nationality and language he uh, which nationality he is and which language he spoke but it was a couple of weeks ago that I played this now and he honestly doesn't appear for that long and that's a nice thing like it, it, it's not a throwaway because he was relevant to the story but he wasn't integral if you get what I mean this is not to say that Tekken 7 only does weird things that break genre in the story and that's why it's worth talking about they also use some of the things that they developed specifically for Tekken 7 to deliver impact within the story as well. So one of the things that Tekken 7 introduced for its multiplayer component is a mechanic in the game where they slow down the game and zoom in on a an exchange between players if it's about to end the round sometimes. So there, there's a chance for this slow motion to happen if both players throw out a move at around the same time and, and it's possible that one of them will die off of it. That's a multiplayer thing to add drama and tension and they kind of use that in a couple of places in the game to ex to exposit the story like that to, to give exposition so there's a particular fight between a main character and in an old in a flashback and they're like reminiscing the past that they shared together and there are certain hits that you can do in that fight that will just cause a small that will cause the slowdown to happen and cause small bits of past events to just play out in voice and slight visual layover just to like make you understand that the characters are thinking about this past that they shared together while this fight is happening this is a very personal event for both of these characters and this is not necessarily something that you know either of them wants to do at this time but they've been forced into this situation hearing that um i don't know how familiar you are with martial arts movies i'm not super familiar with the genre but it sounds like a sort of thing that maybe wouldn't be out of place in a martial arts movie of some kind. It, not exactly the kind of thing I'm thinking of, but there's a there's an entire fight sequence that happens in the movie Hero starring Jet Li where two combatants face off and they like imagine the fight happening in their minds before the fight actually physically takes place and you get to see two different uh two fight scenes one really drawn out mental war against each other and then one just confirming the fact of the of the winner in in the mental match uh not not quite the same but like similar like a lot of mental a lot of understanding the mental processes and the mental space that the, the characters are in through the fighting if that makes sense yeah there are other aspects to Tekken 7 but before I get to that the last thing I want to point out that Tekken 7 did well is in a climactic fight sequence there was a moment where one character was knocked down and then seemed to get up on a second wind. It really felt within the story like this character was on their last legs and so they represented this in the next upcoming fight by having the life bar, the life gauge of that character being at only about 10% of his full health. Showing you that he's very weakened at this point and he's honestly very close to being out of the fight 
if not dead completely, while the other person, opponent he was fighting, was at full life bar at the beginning of the fight. And that's, number one, a great visual way to deliver that narrative. But number two, they also did something very smart in the background where although character A, the one who was on his second wind, was only at about 10% of the life bar, that 10% of the life bar only went down in very, very small increments as he got hit because the amount of damage that was actually being dealt to him was a lot lower in, like, in terms of the numbers behind the scenes. So he would, in theory, have the full life bar, except just compressed down to that last 10% to show that he's in a desperate situation. That's such a great trick. When we first started planning this podcast, this was one of the scenes that you most wanted to talk about, I feel. Absolutely. I. It, it's just so immediate how it conveys that this person is on his last legs, doesn't have much more to give, running out of gas, and it still works so well with the mechanics because they just said, yeah, we'll make him very, very tough and hard to kill on this last 10% of health. And it should work out to have the full life bar effect. And there's a number of ways you can do this behind the scenes, and they're all smart, but you're kind of tricking out good narrative storytelling out of simple visual elements, if that makes sense. And chances are, like, it's a difficult fight, right? So I assume that most players won't spend a lot of time looking at how little their life bar moves when they get hit. And so the effect isn't super jarring to them. I mean, it depends. If you expect to die because you expect a normal hit to do that much life and you look up and you go, oh, I didn't lose as much as I thought, you'll probably notice it very quickly. But I think the effect is still like there. It, it doesn't feel unfair to the player as well, which is like super important in this kind of situation. Yeah, I imagine it feels like really fair at, yeah. because you've got so much more durability. I want to ask you, though, about story mode. So one of the problems that a lot of fighting games have had with story modes like Tekken 7, so Injustice and Street Fighter story modes have a similar failing is that you have to play a lot of characters to have the story mode work and fighting and characters all play fairly differently. How does Tekken 7 manage that? So the first thing is that, as I said before, the cast is relatively small. There are only a couple of staple characters through the story mode. But you are right, even cycling through a couple of characters is going to be very jarring to the player if they're not given time to get to come to grips with the character. Especially in a game like Tekken. Tekken is a game where each character has a very extensive move set. It would take a long time to learn how to how to play each character at a competent level. Uh, and to kind of aid with this, Tekken 7 Story Mode has a functionality they call Story Assist, where holding down um, on a PlayStation L1 will allow your character to kind of shortcut certain good moves on your character. And so you're given four options. Hold L1 and press either square, triangle, cross, or circle at the same time. And they just get one of their slightly better moves that deal a bit more damage, that put you in a slightly more favorable position, without having having to do the slightly more complicated input. And so you're able to take fights one hit at a time, especially if you're playing on normal. You are you, you should have the space to just kind of say, all right, I'm going to block the computer. They're going to throw out something unsafe, and then I'm just going to put this one big hit here. It's going to take me a bit more time than doing a full and damaging combo, but I can get through this. I can get through the story with this. And that's probably actually a really good lesson to teach new players is that if you are patient, pay attention, use a few big moves, you can do some stuff. Like it's not throwing them into do all the combos right at the very start, which is very intimidating, especially with Tekken. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it also points players in the kind of direction of, oh, that's a that's a good move. I should try and figure out which move that is. If they are interested in playing that character themselves outside of story mode and going to training mode, they might 
look through the move list to look for that specific move to learn the inputs to do that in an actual match, saying to the player, these are good enough. And I guess that's what story mode really aims to do a lot of the time in fighting games is like give you that initial, here's a cast, here's like generally what you should be looking for. And it gives you like a starting point to jump off and start delving into everything. Do you think Tekken 7 succeeds in that while also telling its story effectively? It definitely could do better. So the major thing is Tekken 7 has a reasonably sized cast and the story mode only covers a handful of characters. So it is very likely that by playing just the story mode, you may not find the character you would enjoy playing the most in the game because there's quite a variety on offer and you're only being shown a couple. So that's a side effect, I guess, of telling that good story sensibly and only introducing characters that need to be introduced. And I'm not sure what the right answer is to this. However, you just have to compromise and prioritize one over the other, I guess. So we've gone on on this discussion for quite a bit now, but I will quickly say a couple of things. Story mode isn't the only single player component to Tekken 7. Some of the things that we're going to be talking about that's common through these to the games on the list is how the game tries to teach you how to play the game, because that's very important in a fighting game. And that's what single player is there for, teaching you how to play in a safe environment, as you said before. So Tekken 7 has a useful training mode. It's not the best in the world, but it's very useful. It has a lot of useful functionality. When I was going through it, because I had not learned how to play Tekken 7 before research for this, I took it upon myself to try and learn a character. And there is a useful feature in the training mode where you can put one move's input on the screen at once and learn how to do it and move through the entire move list one move at a time and just slowly work your way through all of it. If you have some fighting game fundamentals already, you might work out which moves are good, which moves look good, are probably going to be useful in a fight, which moves may not. But not exactly great if you don't have that background. So small failing, decent training mode. Tekken 7 also presents a mode called Treasure Battle. So Tekken, it's a pseudo survival sequence. One of the things I like about it is that loading through that is very fast. I don't like when I want to play multiple matches against a computer just to practice that I have to wait a long time to load into the game. Treasure Battle loads reasonably well. Treasure Battle also pretends to be an online experience. You're not fooled. It's very clear from the get-go that your opponents are computer, but they're given names that look like online names. They are given outfits on characters that look like they could be designed by someone. And this is a very smart thing because Tekken Se- uh, the Tekken 7 game is able to say, when you play against the computer, when you play against the game, our characters should look the way our characters are designed. However, Tekken 7 gives you a whole slew of customization options, and they're able to showcase this in this treasure battle mode, saying, this is what you might face if you went online. People who look like this, characters who have you know a life preserver on and a snorkel as opposed to just clothes and it's interesting and wacky and fun and it gets you to interact with their system gets you to get some in-game currency in order to buy customization options and it's not just going through arcade mode for an ending that you may not care about it gives you a cup a bit of stakes um, with in-game currency without being too hard yeah it's just sort of like little thing to just do a little bit of the time develop resources which i think you'll find that nearly everything in our list has a mode like this a little that lets you collect and acquire that sort of keeps you playing a little bit longer than you might without those sort of 
features. Uh, a weirdly cynical way to look at this, if you want to think of it in this way, is that you will get better as long as you play the game for any reason. And so this is just giving you different, small, potentially meaningless reasons and incentives to play. Which potentially meaningless reasons to keep playing can be kind of important for games that aren't necessarily terribly intuitive. Like you need to spend a long time playing Tekken to feel really comfortable with Tekken. Anything that can help get you to the point that you feel comfortable with the system, I think is really important, even if it's a little bit manipulative, like this might be considered. Although on the scale of manipulative tactics, this is pretty low, I imagine. I mean, you are getting something out of it. If you derive enjoyment from customizations... And most players seem to, if you look at how free-to-play yeah, is going, at least. Absolutely. I, I, I derived an unnecessarily high amount of satisfaction from making uh, my character, which I was learning, Asuka, look like Terry Bogard from the King of Fighters franchise. That was very pleasant for me. And it's pretty in-depth character customization. Like, it's not like Overwatch where it's just a skin and some maybe palette tweaks. It's actually, like, individual pieces of clothing and hairstyles and things that let you not change the body, but change more or less anything they're wearing, right? Yeah, yeah. Change the colors of... So it's it's headpiece or hairstyle, top, shirt, coat, stuff like that bottom pants skirts uh, stuff like that and th th those are your primary things that you're changing yeah yeah it, it is a lot of dress up and it's fun so it's full dress up yeah and that's something that namco has actually always excelled in namco is of course the developer behind tekken 7 they've been doing strong character customization since soul caliber 3 i believe and it's been a key part of their single player strategy from then up till now even you get more invested in a character if you put time into making it. Yes. Like, that's a very fair thing to say. And there's also just the fact that it's your character. Like, yeah, you might run that's into right. the same Jin as yourself, but probably your Jin is yep. going to have the most stylish set of glasses or whatever your particular thing that you like is. Are the items acquired randomly or just by amassing currency and paying for it? There are some items that are only dropped during treasure battle and some that are bought using currency that you obtain during treasure battle. Sounds like a good pleasant mode to like sort of chill out with and enjoy tinkering with. Yeah. Is that about right? Definitely. It's very easy to just keep hitting restart every time you lose. As I said, the loading is very fast and that really kept me in the loop of just going, oh, well, I lost. Let's start the survival again. Try to get as high of a streak as possible. Cool. Well, in that case, why don't we have a look at our next title that handles... A few of these things in similar ways and a few of these things in very different ways. Guilty Gear Exerd Revelator, which is a hell of a title, is the most recent Guilty Gear entry by Arc Systems Works. And it approaches some of the things Tekken does in entirely different ways. Let's contrast story mode first of all. So Tekken 7 has this beautiful integration between its mechanics and its story, and it makes sure to tell, to like really tinker with genre a lot. And Guilty Gear really does play with genre a lot with how it tells its story. I would hazard that it's not the same genre at all. I would assert that it's not the same genre at all. It is, in fact, a visual novel. And Blay Blue, one of Arxis's other fighting games, has visual novel moments that they intersperse with battles. Um, Guilty Gear Revelator decides that if you want to hear the Guilty Gear story, you're just there to see the story. There's no combat whatsoever. And I think it's a really brave approach because it means that their story has to be good for its own sake, since you're not there for any gameplay reason. 
reasons. It's beautiful. It's interesting in ways I didn't care for it much myself. But it does let you get to know the huge cast of characters, which I think is really important for Guilty Gear. So Tekken 7, if I understood you correctly, was more about making sure that it had a very tight, condensed story. It was telling the story of a couple of people with really clear protagonist-antagonist roles. Whereas Revelator really wants you to get to know everyone in the cast for at least a few minutes. And with a cast of about 30 very unique individuals... With some of them being joke characters as well, like they're not meant to be taken seriously kind of characters, given their proper spotlight in the story mode. Yeah, and some of the characters who might seem like jokes, such as Bedman, a child in a coma attached to a bed that that he psychically controls. Is he in a coma in the story? I can't remember now. I do not remember. He's definitely not awake. Yeah, an unconscious child in a bed who fights using his psychic powers. To a young pirate girl who fights with the magic of dolphins. To my favorite character, a business ninja who's always on the phone during combat. And not all of these are joke characters. And not all of these are joke characters. In fact, Bedman is one of the more important plot characters, frankly. Despite sounding like a weird joke side thing. So Guilty Gear has a very bizarre cast of characters. And a lot of them can look a little bit unappealing. And a lot of them play very difficultly so you need to have some emotional investment i think to really get into and appreciate the cast i feel and i feel so story mode's like a weird strength and a failure of guilty gear because i think it is worth critiquing it for just being a visual novel yes absolutely especially if you can push a button and turn it into a movie yes and in fact it recommends you do so yeah it wants you to sit back and do nothing imagine this scenario you got this new game It looks really pretty because Guilty Gear looks really, really pretty. They do really cool things with shaders and stuff. You get home, you put it in, and you get excited to play it. And you want to get introduced to these characters, as you said, through story mode. It makes a lot of sense. They say, don't even play this. Just sit back and watch it. I'm not sure how I would take that if I was in that situation. If I wasn't expecting it, I'm not sure how I'd take it. I might ignore the story mode at that point because I want to play the game. And to be fair, Revelator is the second in the Exerd part of Guilty Gear. And I played the first Guilty Gear story mode. And the only reason I played this one story mode is because we were going to talk about it for this show. And I mean, I think that we have Intellicious, but you and I are both fairly big fighting game fans. Yeah. I both appreciate the single player efforts, but for Guilty Gear, I'm not there for the story now that I've gotten used to a lot of its weirdness. Absolutely. It's quirky, but I would rather play the game. The reason why Guilty Gear is on this list, though, is actually there are are a number of reasons for it. But I think the thing that really elevated it to make sure it got its spot was a uniquely excellent tutorial mode. Yes. And it's not very long. Like, you can finish this tutorial mode within 20 or 30 minutes quite easily. 20 minutes? Yeah, that would be my estimate, about 20 minutes. Like, it's short enough that I simply recorded it and sent it off to Blue for quick watching. So a lot of fighting game tutorials tend to go with a fairly bland sort of thing of press jump three times, dash forwards, dash back. Guilty Gear really tries to gamify all those things. So you start the tutorial mode against one of the new characters for this game, Jacko, who has the power to summon minions. And it uses her power to summon minions to create these very bizarre sort of mini-gaming situations such as touch all the balloons, pop all the balloons by running into them. And so you have to jump around the screen using your movement in creative ways. 
Then following that, she summons minions that you have to attack using certain commands. So it gets used to all your buttons and what the spacing of those buttons is. Like say the slash button gives you like a better horizontal arc. So she really encourages you to like try all your options to work out what the range of all your buttons is and that they all are very different. Which is a really hard thing for fighting games to communicate, and they tend not to succeed in that, to be perfectly frank. Accessibility of this training mode is, I think, really well done. They start slow. They make it so that even if they want you to do commands back to back, that they don't care in the early sequences how long you take. So long as you hit the right button, even if you take another 10 minutes to hit the right button again in the right spot, they're still okay with that. And they slowly rein that in. They slowly add timing to it. They're always asking you to move in the way that is good for for the game. Because one of the things that a lot of other training modes in other games don't really convey to the player is movement is one of the most important things in fighting games. Being in the right place to be able to hit your opponent while still being safe, being in the right place to punish your opponent after they've done something unsafe themselves, being in the right place to just not get hit by something dangerous, not being in a situation that is hard to get out of is better than learning how to deal with that situation. And a lot of that comes down to movement. And this tutorial, by placing the targets in weird places, by placing the minions in weird places, makes you keep moving, just naturally teaching you a bit about how to play the game at that very fundamental level. And it is really impressive, like some of the small steps it does to build you up so guilty gear features sort of rapid fire combos where usually in quick succession press say um punch kick slash or something yep and so before it starts teaching you combos it'll like often arrange minions in that order close-ish to each other but not like exactly next to each other which is another really there are lots of just really nice elegant touches that make this work and it even tries to like teach you some more obscure things so once you finish tutorial mode you get a few like extra mini games that you can tinker with one of which has you using moves to navigate much more complicated paths that have many more obstacles through them that require you to use certain special move properties and even a small puzzle that requires using the invulnerability from recovering from being hit by a move which is a pretty nuanced thing to learn but is really important to navigating some of the very difficult setups that opponents will do to you in guilty now, there's no guarantee that learning this really fringe setup will translate to a player understanding, oh, that's why I got hit in-game. But it's definitely a first step, and it's definitely a step that a lot of other fighting games don't really take. It is, and so I really like Guilty Gear. I've been playing the series since the mid-2000s, and I have some bad habits that the tutorial mode really tried hard to get me out of, because I tend to forget that one of the buttons is actually very useful, and where its order is in general combo strings, and it was really keen to try and encourage me to actually use it way more than I usually do. Next up, we have what is fairly common for these sort of games to have a combo mission mode, where basically the game presents you with a short line of moves to do and tells you, do them. And often they start off fairly simple. So usually like just going through some of your special moves, ramping up to a general air combo, ramping up to a general ground combo, how to link from one to the other, doing a full combo from ground to air and things like that. This is fairly typical mode, and if it wasn't for the fact that most of the other the games that we're talking about don't have this mode, I wouldn't bother with it. It's just a little way to like prevent someone needing to go to the internet to find out how to get better with their character. Did Tekken 7 have this sort of a mode? No, it didn't. 
at least not while I was tinkering with it, because a lot of their move list is just strings of buttons that are just short combos anyway. But I did not learn how to do slightly longer combos from the game. I actually had to go to a friend to teach me that. And admittedly, Guilty Gear's combos that it teaches you in-game are mostly pretty short, and the longer ones it does teach you are not necessarily the most practical ones that the game, like real tournament play would have you learn, but they're there. More interestingly, Guilty Gear has a really elaborate mission mode that's designed to show you interesting and unique situations that can crop up in the real game, and it provides you with some advice on how to solve them, but they're basically short combat puzzles like you might see in maybe some older trading card games or even like chess puzzles perhaps might be the best analogy where you're given a board and you're given a number of moves and say how do you get a checkmate yeah more or less and so often it is like here's the situation how do you hit this person and deal the game terms significant amount of damage which is about 80 damage which is about maybe a fifth of someone's life bar is what it expects you to try and get out of most of these situations in a single combo, resulting from often a bad setup. Some of these are character-specific, right, you said? So some of them are character-specific, and some of them you can do with every character. There's a set of about 50 missions that are for anyone to do. Yes. And there's a set of about 50 missions that are all versing a specific character setup. Yep. So like, for instance, the very first mission is trying to hit someone out of doing their projectile. So running up to them and hitting them out of their projectile before they've done it. Which is very simple, like, there's not much to it other than running forwards and hitting attack twice. But later on, they might talk about how one character has a particularly good uppercut, but when they land from doing the uppercut, they're in a counter-hit state for a long time, and you can abuse that to make a good combo. So the character-specific mode goes through how to deal with certain character-specific setups. Yes, like they're particularly more difficult moves, which for a game like Guilty Gear, like it's worth emphasizing that a lot of characters have very unusual moves or move setups that can be really hard to work out exactly what they do and how to deal with them. So the fact that Guilty Gear has this mode to go through and basically go, these are some of the weird situations you might be in. Let's have a moment for you to try and solve them in a safe space. So how well do you think that translates for a new player? So like this will require a bit of imagining from you. You since you're not a new player to the series but how well do you think this works for a new player to translate that knowledge and information and be able to use that in an actual fight it's really hard i think it'd be really hard to like go oh i now know this i can get it done in a fight but i think that it'd make you go i at least understand there are solutions to this problem yeah like you might not be able to apply them for real in a match immediately, but you could certainly actually know what you should be doing. And I think that's important. Like for a lot of fighting games, many players can feel like they don't know what they even should be starting to try and do. Yep, absolutely. And this mode doesn't tell you everything you should do, but it gives you a good idea, especially the more generalized missions of, oh, you could do this and this. Like the third mission it puts you through is actually baiting an attack from someone where it suggests that you run forwards, use a special kind of block to do an immediate stop. And then once you see that they've done something, run up to them and punish that move they just did because they tried to react to your dash. And that's a really good lesson to teach about opening up other players that most fighting games are really bad at teaching. And that specific strategy isn't the best way to do that by any means, but it's a good starting point to give you an idea of how to use your movement in creative and aggressive ways. 
other than just air dashing into people from overhead. So again, probably not the most amazing and like perfect single player experience, but certainly a step in a direction that few other games are taking to try and bridge this almost insurmountable knowledge barrier into being able to play the game comfortably against other people and understand what you're doing right and understand what you're doing wrong. And definitely as critique to this mode, I sat through playing it a little while the other day and I'm someone who understands the language that this game uses. There are a number of missions that in my initial reading of the mission text, I thought I understood it and the game kept telling me that I'd failed. And it was because there were just minor, very specific nuances to how they were using these words. And I could imagine to a new player who didn't care much for Guilty Gear that this is immensely frustrating. This sort of mode is for people who they've already emotionally committed to this game. Like they want to get better. This is not like a mode that someone who's kind of unsure about the game would get anything out of really. So this probably wouldn't hook a new player is what you're saying. It's not a thing to hook someone with. It's absolutely not a thing to hook someone with. And to be clear, that's fine. And even the tutorial mode for all the joy that it brings me, it wouldn't hook someone into Guilty Gear. And to be very clear, It's fine for these additions to single player to not hook someone. If you're catering to people who already enjoy your game and just are looking for more in single player, perfectly acceptable. But important to know where these limitations lie. And there are lots of games that don't really cater to brand new players that are very popular. I mean, looking at extremely popular games like League of Legends and such, which offer very little for new players to walk in and feel comfortable with other than a few practice matches, Guilty Gear is doing a fair bit to help you out. Absolutely trying to put the knowledge on the table already. And I think just not having to make those extra walks to Wikipedia and being given the options to just find solutions to problems within the game is a really good starting point. Do you have anything more you want to say about Guilty Gear before we move on to the next topic? No, that really covers a lot of the stuff. It's a hard game to get into in the first place, so it's really, really appreciated that they take these steps to try and bridge a single player... uh, Sorry, a player with a single player experiences to feel more comfortable with multiplayer. And our next game is maybe the most well-played on this list by a large margin, and it does a lot to really get players comfortable with all its systems, with all its characters in lots of weird and unique environments, and it's a series that a lot of people actually do play primarily for its single-player content, which is the Super Smash Bros. series. So we're going to cheat a bit with talking about Smash Brothers while we try and look at about five games per an episode. Smash has a lot of things that have been in some games and not in some others and had some things change over its history. So we want to talk about the series as a whole a little bit. One thing that's universal to all the games is a really excellent short one to two minute video that explains its mechanics in a fairly simple way. It doesn't go into a lot of nuance about them, but it gives you the basic outline of what you should be doing, why you should be doing it and the applications for a few of the things. Is there any particular like grand note you want to say about the video? That it's an eye catch. So it's a video that will play if you just leave the game on the title screen. So it's going to be a video that if you're walking through a game store and they have the game just running, letting, waiting for people to play it, this video will come up. And if you just happen to stop by and go, oh, that looks interesting and like spend a minute looking at it, you go, oh, I guess I know how to roughly play the game now. That's very, very good in terms of accessibility, getting people to just pick it up and give it a shot. And while high level Smash is really difficult in a lot of ways and maybe more difficult than other fighting games, I think that that video, it helps that Smash has a simple concept. 
and that most parts that make it work are relatively simple individually. And while they combine in weird ways, ultimately it quickly conveys it in a very easy way because systems don't necessarily require a detailed tutorial mode. Which the game does not provide for the most part. Not at all. In fact, a critique of Smash in general is that it doesn't contain a lot of information about itself within itself. Guilty Gear may not have had all its information displayed perfectly, but it at least has more or less all of it in the game. Smash has many mysteries to it. One of those mysteries was in Brawl, Subspace Emissary, a mode that is well beloved by some and very disliked by others. And it's a really interesting attempt. It's a story mode that uses the fact that the Smash Brothers games are more or less loosely based off platformers to make a big sprawling platform adventure using your huge cast of characters to tell a surprisingly well-made story. And it was a really interesting mode. What are you, I think you're a little bit more positive than me about it. Why don't you talk about it first? <laughs> I, I can hear you struggling to maintain neutrality in that lead up. All right. So it's honestly such a great piece of just love and care for these characters because I can only imagine that the developers realized that they were in a position where they were managing beloved characters from so many franchises and just kind of looked at each other and went, I'm sure we can tell a really cool story with this. And so I imagine that's where it started. They just sat down and tried to make a good story about it. And they put a lot of effort into the cutscenes, which, you know, you mentioned some people really, really love this mode. That's where it would come from. The cutscenes show off all the characters and all their personality and you know if you ever wonder what would happen when zero suit samus or i guess just samus aran meets pikachu well you get to see that play out in subspace emissary in honestly very good cg effects for the time that still kind of hold up today and it's worth saying like it, this is a big collaborative effort so square enix one of the lead directors behind final fantasy 7 story actually worked on a lot of subspace emissaries direction too so this is not just a nintendo production for the story it actually had collaboration with other developers nobuo uematsu did some of the music for the mode it's sort of and square enix is the company you would expect to cross over with if you were trying to tell a big story like this. It tries to be grand, it tries to have scale and epicness, tries to have big settings, and for the most part... And it also tries to have beautiful small character moments. Yeah, and, and for the most part it just succeeds on all those counts. Unfortunately, where it kind of stumbles is, yeah, the gameplay. And uh, in a video game, that feels like a big stumbling block and it's well intentioned so if you were to tell someone oh i've got this great idea it's smash brothers but a platformer because smash brothers is already basically a platformer and it's really interesting to see how much smash doesn't work as a platformer its jumps are sort of either too good or not good enough to like always make your jumps. There's rarely a question of, will you make any jump the game gives you? Which I think renders a lot of it being very bland. Because I think where the problem comes from is the normal modes in which you would play the game. Because vertical movement is so important, you're given quite a lot of it in order to recover off stage to try and grab ledges. The weird interaction here is that if you're just jumping and you have massive vertical height that you can't reduce, it feels bad to just fall for 
three quarters of your jump. That's not fun. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that Smash Brothers is a very momentum-based game. In a lot of ways, platformers like to be precise, and some of the characters don't move very well for that kind of precision. And also, enemies don't interact much with the momentum. They often build up a bunch of damage and then sort of get sent flying and ricocheting in small environments. So it just doesn't match up with the way that this story mode plays out doesn't feel like what the rest of Smash feels like, even though it's using the same engine and the same characters, which ultimately makes it feel not... So we've we sort of talked about how establishing a safe space for learning the conventions and the way that the game works is important. Emissary establishes a safe space and you are technically learning how characters work but you're not learning how the game works in a sense yep that's right and it has like some nice little extras if you're not comfortable with certain things like you can play co-op and co-op makes everything better you can unlock by playing other modes little items that you can stick to your characters that will give you small rpg like benefits like extra attack or more speed there's lots of things that go into emissary that suggest that it was a big effort and a big push in the marketing behind the game really pushed it very hard and it's a real shame that it misses the mark they they put so much effort into it there is i think something in the order of 50 minutes of actual cutscene just cutscene in subspace emissary that's about right yes and it's all good like it's joyous in a conversation you and i had a long time ago you asked me if i viewed cutscenes as reward yep which is sort of a bit of a generational difference between some gamers perhaps and if any game typifies um cutscenes as a reward i think spaceship emissary and brawl subspace oh emissary. subspace emissary in Brawl really typifies that a lot. Absolutely. But while we're talking down about this, I think that uh, at the very start we mentioned that fighting games can do something unique and special to tell their stories. And I think Sp Subspace Emissary comes really close. You've got a large cast of characters with very diverse attacking mechanisms that you can use to interact with a lot of different t enemy types. And that's inherently pretty, like a pretty good starting point. You've got a story that involves a very large cast of characters, which while any game could do that, fighting games are well suited naturally to have large casts of mechanically rich characters it's a lot of like i want to see if smash brothers ultimate can pull off the promise of emissary because it's such a good promise that even though we're very negative about it it could provide a very good safe space to get people invested and it could be a way for people to start playing because being single player and being a little bit more rpg ish it doesn't feel like it's a game of conflict like a versus game is inherently yes Absolutely. Do you have anything more you want to say about Subspace Emissary? No, I think that that really covers it. It's just very ambitious. And unfortunately, the gameplay, which is so important, falls a bit flat. But one thing that I think Smash Brothers succeeded in hugely is from Melee onwards, Smash Brothers had a mode called Event Match. And Event Matches take the usual gameplay mechanics and usually either play with them and create silly contexts like there's a match where you play as um where you play as link and you're fighting ganondorf like various ganondorfs you're zelda and link in a team fighting ganondorf away some of them play on like the series legacy some of them play with very specific mechanics such as a level that you play as pac-man you use his final smash the game's language for super moves to try and kill a certain amount of enemies in a short time which plays off 
The nostalgia for the character is Pac-Man's super lets him eat other players, killing them instantly, and also tying to the high score legacy of the arcade routes. But some matches ask you to play with the game in a slightly different way, such as asking you to kill a hundred very light characters who can die with only one or two hits. Pseudo-survival zombie horde kind of game mode in Smash. And while Emissary throws you in situations that don't represent normal gameplay very much, in the event matches, while there's lots of tweaks to the normal gameplay, such as things being stronger or weaker than they might usually be, or like the amounts, you're still engaging with all the core systems in how you would expect them. And that's that really helps you get used to the rather strange set of rules that Smash Brothers have. And while Guilty Gear's mission mode had very specific solve this situation here are some tools. Smash Brothers event matches provide very weird situations that don't directly look like problems you'd see in a normal match. So they're kind of fun to see and do, but they also teach you a lot of little bits about the game system as you go along. Have you played a lot of these event matches in your time with Smash Blue? Not a lot of event matches, some. So I have vari- played the variants of multi-man smash where you have to kill a lot of characters that are easy to kill at once and you just have to survive for as long as possible that kind of stuff yeah that that's most of my hands-on experience with it i've seen a wide variety of the event matches although most of the specifics kind of escape me at the moment uh, i know i've seen almost all of the melee ones i think and melee i think has one of the stronger collections of matches a lot play with the rules in lots of interesting ways and it of course famously has the final smash um event match event match 51 where you play against three of what are considered the stronger characters including a boss version of one of the characters all at once so it really pushes you to your limits of what you can do with the system and that and players who go through all the event matches won't be masters of smash but they definitely know all the ins and outs they see all the characters in different interesting situations it's a really fantastic mode the fourth smash brothers game the newest one has 41 solo events and 21 co events each with their own distinctive rules i like comparing the event matches to puzzles the way you said you know like similar to what guilty gear did i think that puzzles where you have to solve it using the confines of the mechanics are really a good way to engage players you you, they have this tool set they have this problem now what can i do about it and smash is very similar to all the other fighting games the more you just interact with the system the more comfortable you get with it and it's worth saying i agree with you that these event matches are sort of fight puzzles in a sense but whereas guilty gears mission mode it was a very specific solution to each puzzle yeah there is one or two solutions to most of them if if two yeah And if Smash Bros. puzzles, they're more open-ended. Yeah, so they're more like problems than puzzles, if that distinction makes sense to you. I like that distinction. That's actually really great, yeah. Yeah, so there are lots of tactics you could use to solve the puzzle, the problem, but there's more than one solution, whereas puzzle feels like you're just slotting in your single solution into something else that already exists. Yep. And a lot of the Smash 3, Smash Brawl, and Smash 4's um, event matches are more thematic, they don't play with the mechanics so much. Melee does a lot more that play with mechanics such as weight and amounts or hurting only one character but not another and things. Another mode that is a really minor throwaway mode but I think is a really excellent mode that has been in some of the Smash Brothers games is Break the Targets. Very simple, very short mini game where each character is specific in the first two games 
each character's a specific environment in which each character has to break nine or ten targets. And what's really special about the first two games with them is that being specially designed for each character, each of them had something to tell you about your character's movesets. One of my favorites of these is in Super Smash Bros. Melee, where Young Link starts being in a very tall, narrow, confined space that with his normal two jumps and his up B, which will propel him further upwards, he can't get out of. And it requires you to learn that he's got a wall jump. And if you just tinker about with buttons for a while in this space, you'll probably accidentally tap jump near a wall and learn that this mechanic exists for some characters. And it also has an extra trick where, in this case, Young Link's forwards beam special move on return ignores walls, as in it goes through walls and doesn't care about whether they exist or not. And it uses that to make you break a target by throwing a boomerang and then jumping behind a wall which has targets between it, or sorry, which has walls surrounding a target and using this mechanic to get through there. And a lot of these Spake the Targets modes have similar kinds of character teaching moments, which are really good since Guilty Gear is a little bit direct with how it teaches you these things. Smash Brothers just giving you an environment, giving you a problem as opposed to a puzzle, I think is a really good move here. In view of actually sitting the player down and telling them, this is how you play this character, this is what this character can do, these are the character's limitations, Putting a character into a you know sandbox like that where they have to accomplish these tasks, but they can do this in whatever way makes sense to them, whatever way they want to try. I think that's has a lot of value as well as far as going to create a safe space for the player to learn how to interact with the game, interact with the mechanics, and interact in this case specifically with that character. But of course, we've talked about how Tekken 7 has the treasure treasure battle, was it? Treasure Battle. Treasure Battle. Yep. Smash Brothers 4... Smash Brothers Brawl introduce stickers as a collectible item that lets you upgrade characters for the purpose of story mode. In Smash Brothers 4... We have a whole new emphasis on customization, which I personally mostly ignored. But would you like to talk more about that, Luke? Sure. I mostly ignored the customization side of it, and I was really in the loop to kind of get familiar with the game. But there are events, and even honestly just playing normal Smash Brothers against the computer or against people with items on, you can get customization items and custom move sets in the game as well. So Smash, Super Smash Brothers for the Wii U and for the 3DS introduced the concept of custom moves where you can swap the B moves of certain characters, oh sorry, of all the characters with variants. They mostly behave the same, but with small tweaks. Maybe a move doesn't go as high, but now it has a larger hitbox, so it's more offensively focused. Maybe a move loses its attack power, but now pushes enemy uh, opponents away instead of actually hitting them, changing the property slightly. So you got incentive to collect these because some of these custom moves are very interesting and like exciting for new players to play with. And you also got customization items for one specific character that could be rolled as three different archetypes. So Smash Brothers four introduced a character called the me fighter the me brawler and the me gunner using the nintendo me's as templates giving them unique move sets depending on which archetype you chose you could customize those me's to look like anything you wanted and that played a lot with systems outside of the game as well but yeah within the game you could change the way your me looked and equip them with different custom moves and additionally there was also another sort of customization hook with 
the amiibo actually um you could scan your amiibo you could train their ai by fighting against them and you could feed them food which would increase and vary their stats quite significantly so you could develop amiibo to play with and against that were quite different to their base forms ultimately some of those um equipment that you feed them would have special abilities like deals more damage at no percent for example is i think one of the effects in the game and that would just be conferred onto your amiibo character permanently if you fed them that and i think like what makes Smash's single player modes work so well is that they all give you very different experiences. And actually, Smash Brothers has lots of modes that we haven't discussed yet, but all the modes in Smash Brothers are deeply incentivized with the trophy system in the games. So each of the games has this um, optional collectible that they don't do anything mechanically for you. They're just interesting things to collect that contain a bit of interesting Nintendo trivia. And you get them for doing all sorts of things, whether it be finishing certain matches, beating certain records, or just randomly collecting them through investing a small in-game currency. And they're a pretty compelling reason if you're a big fan of this game, and collectibles are often quite popular too, to go alongside actual customization like with the special moves. When you were playing Blue, did you feel compelled or interested by the trophies at all? Only insofar as there was an accomplishment in the game for collecting a certain number of unique trophies. That's right. I completely forgot about the the panel system, right? The panel system, correct. So yes, but not because of their inherent value, which they are interesting, you're right. The small tidbits of information, the the quick paragraph, I read most of them. But no, the reason I collected them was because there was another achievement system that required you to do certain tasks, such as play this mode with every character or play this mode and get this score. And one of those tasks is collect certain number of unique trophies within the game. And all these things feed in to make going into Smash as a single person always a good experience. And as we've said previously, like just any time spent in these fighting games helps you get more familiar with the systems, which makes you more comfortable when you actually engage with other players in perhaps a less relaxed environment. And I think Smash Brothers is one of the more successful fighting game, like single player collections in a fighting game. I know many people who buy it primarily as a single player experience in fact and you mostly played it fairly solo yourself right yes that is very accurate to say uh i had a small curiosity about smash as a game series to something to get into and so i purchased the 3ds version and ended up just tinkering with it a lot in downtime like five minutes here five minutes there getting a hang of movement in the game because I find movement in that game to be very challenging. It's one of the hardest things to get control of at high level, understanding how momentum works, and just small things like that. And while some of these modes aren't in the 3DS version, did you feel that it had the like the hooks in it to keep you playing were sufficient to get you playing to the point that you felt comfortable with those things? Absolutely. I'm not sure how many hours I have sunk into the game because I just don't remember off the top of my head. I can imagine it's in the hundreds at this point, because I've had the game for a couple of years now, and I have been playing it on and off the entire time. It's strange to say that you've, you know, sunk a couple hundred hours into a game and still don't feel comfortable playing it, but I genuinely think that's how high-level Smash, how far apart high-level Smash is from just the casual level. There's a lot of weird nuance that 
the game never teaches you, but I don't even know how you'd begin to teach people that level of nuance in a way that is engaging. And I don't think that's a problem because most other games don't really teach you in detail their specific high-level play. I think Smash is really good because all its single-player stuff aims to satisfy casual interest. And from there, if you develop something a bit more than casual interest, you're probably self-motivated to keep playing the game. So that's a very good philosophy to have with regards to single-player content in these kinds of games, in fighting games. Aim to make it accessible, aim to satisfy your most casual interests, and let it build from there. Probably covered, we covered a lot of Smash. I know we cheated by sort of covering four games or so, but I think we should maybe move on to the next topic before we take up too much time. And next up is Killer Instinct. If you look at this list so far, it's our first Western-developed game on the list, actually. And also our first game that started off free-to-play, of all things. So Killer Instinct was an early Xbox One exclusive and later came out on Steam. Later came out on Windows 10 Store and then Steam. You're right. And Killer Instinct's a pretty interesting piece of work in lots of ways. And I think it's safe to say that you and I both really like its single player modes, but that we don't like the actual mechanics of the raw moment to moment gameplay itself. It's a bit overwhelming. I think I can safely say that it's just too fast for me. I feel old saying that. I think I feel comfortable enough admitting it, though. It's just a very fast paced game, it requires you to be always thinking about what buttons you're pushing. And even when you're getting hit, it's a game that makes you conscious of what buttons your opponent's pushing because you have options out of a combo on the receiving end. But that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So let's talk a bit about its single player content. It has typical story mode, but it's a bit short. It is character specific, which means that for every character, you get small bits of story associated with that character, small exposition, and only a handful of fights, if I'm completely honest. Did you go through any of the story modes yourself? No, actually. I went, I focused mainly on Shadow Lords and Shadow Lab, to be perfectly frank. That's completely fine. So yeah, that's, there's nothing much to write home about with the story mode for each character. Each character's story is cool, unique because the characters themselves are kind of cool and unique and it shows them through a small period through the major conflict that arises through the killer instinct time period so not too much there i will talk briefly about its training mode so killer instinct had in contrast with the other games we've talked about except maybe not guilty gear killer instinct has a lot to convey in its training mode because it has a relatively rich mechanical structure to the game it has this system that is very almost methodical and mathematical. Combo structure is very defined in Killer Instinct. You have moves that are called openers, which then link naturally and cancel into autos, auto doubles, which act as a buffer between into what moves, uh, special moves that are called linkers, which themselves go into more auto doubles, which can iterate almost infinitely between autos and linkers into enders at the end of it. So combos have this defined structure of opener, auto, linker, auto, ender. And I said before that you can interrupt this. If you're on the receiving end of one of these combos, guessing the button that the opponent has pressed and reacting with the corresponding input will allow you to break 
an auto in that combo. So it's very active all the time. These are very hard mechanics to convey through tutorial because all of this is happening very fast. You have to press the buttons almost frantically at some places. I found myself mashing through a lot of this sequence and it's not a very good feeling with a fighting game that like you feel like you're supposed to be precise here because it's giving you the super mathematical formula to follow, right? So yeah, it's very strange. There are a few things that really work here is that A, everyone's interacting with the system at the same time and that also combo length matters a lot more in that the longer your combo is the more chance you can be broken out of it right that's right well i mean you're giving the opponent more chance to react effectively your combo can also blow out if you just run a combo too long because they don't put a limit on how many autos into linkers you can do but if you just do that too many times without ending it your combo quote unquote blows out and it just drops. The opponent just falls out of it. That's just built into the game. And finishes do a disproportionate amount of damage compared to just doing a combo for longer, right? Yep, that's right. So the way it works is that as you do autos and linkers, you're building up potential damage on the opponent, shown in the life bar. Enders cash in that potential damage, just dealing it all as one chunk. And so that's the crash course on how Killer Instincts functions. The only reason we've gone into detail about this at all is because you kind of have to understand that to understand that training mode is super important because that is hard to conceptualize off of just playing the computer randomly. Why are things happening? Why aren't things happening? And so they had quite a bit of work set out for them to teach this to the player. I think they did fine. I don't think I was blown away by this tutorial mode. Would you agree? It's a very typical fighting game tutorial. It consists of a lot of so a brief description of text, being told, press the this button, press the kick button, ah, press the kick button, and then press the forwards and kick button to start your auto. And it's very clinical in a way that a lot of fighting games do and a lot of players don't really connect with very deeply. But the text is clear, it's descriptive, it functions. I do like when you start Shadow Lords mode, you get a slight variant of the tutorial that is in the training mode. That's right. That is a little bit more... Abridged. It's a little bit more cinematic. Yes. It's still mostly, here's some text, do a thing, do it right, do it right three times. But it's a lot more engaging just through having a little bit more context, at least. Absolutely. So that almost felt a bit like preamble. The main reason Killer Instinct is on this list is because of the Shadow Lords mode that you're talking about here. Yeah, and Shadow Lords mode really impressed me, honestly. I was a bit surprised when I first saw the image of the world and it looked a bit XCOM-ish for a moment. Yes, it does. So basically the Shadow Lords mode is a simple mode where you have three characters on a team which you can collect and change over the course of playing through a game of Shadow Lords and every turn you can send one of them to a different location and you usually fight a battle at each of these locations. But before you fight that battle you get a short description like you might get from a game book or from something like Hand of fate that gives you a short situation like you've infiltrated the base you see a gem hiding behind an alarm system do you try and take the gem or do you leave it to complete your mission safely and maybe if you take it you trigger the system and you get better rewards but you have to fight two opponents instead of one that's sort of a common-ish kind of situation would you agree yep absolutely and what i like about this mode is that it gives you a lot of room to play with a lot of the mechanics the punishment for failure is pretty minor because you you do keep the damage that you've taken characters can die but you're sort of always ever moving 
moving forwards. And if you do have all your characters die, you keep all your progress and items and you just reset from turn one again, as opposed to any significant penalty. And it gives you a lot of time to get used to these characters and these systems, which for me, most of these systems were pretty new and these characters were pretty new and I didn't know much about them. So getting to run into them and tinker with them was really good. The fact that you don't get to choose your characters in your initial playthrough, I think helps a lot because it forces you to get used to characters that you might not have thought about trying. And personally, I don't like the look of a lot of the characters in Killer Instinct. So being forced to try a large amount of them actually helped me find someone that I enjoy playing as mechanically. Yeah, there's very clearly a lot of effort put into this. We mentioned at the top of the episode that, you know, maybe one day we'll get to a point where we get this amazing single player experience that really wouldn't work in anything else other than a fighting game. This is, again, as with a lot of the things we've already mentioned on this list, one of those steps in that direction. I don't think it's quite there yet. It still feels contrived. It still feels like, go here and this is the reason why you're fighting this guy. That's why you're fighting. Have fun. You know, it still feels a bit like that. But they add a bit of rogue light elements on top of it, where your progress through this campaign that they've given you may be reset every time you die, keeping some of the resources that you've accrued during your journey there. Is that sensible? Yeah, that's about right. There's one bit that I really didn't connect with here, and that is every time you finish a battle, you get some resources, which is perfectly reasonable. However, I commented at the start that Killer Instinct was originally released as a free-to-play game, while nowadays it tends to be bought with all the season passes, meaning you have all the characters. The single-player mode was clearly designed with the free-to-play mechanics in mind. While you get lots of items from generally doing combat and things, you can also buy boost packs of items, and you need these items to craft new items, which allow you to recover life, items which give you various special abilities in combat. For example, with the combo breaking system, there's an item that lets you always break a combo without having to correctly guess. And those things inherently are all pretty fine. Like I liked finding new items. I liked getting new abilities that let me change the systems a little bit. But free to play games like this tend to use a lot of different items and booster pack sort of structures can be a bit frustrating, especially since it's such a good mode in general, just always having this slight pressure to potentially buy, spend more money to buy things was a bit unappealing to me. That's very fair. It does potentially leave a bad taste in your mouth if you feel like, I paid full price for this game. Why should I pay any more to play? The good thing is that it doesn't lock you out of play. It just might reset some of your progress, which is, you know, frustrating in its own way, but at least it doesn't lock you out of play. That's right. The main thing that it limits is your access to healing items and your access to special abilities. And neither of those things are required to really progress because good play will mean that you will eventually just be able to get through most of it pretty easily and also you do level up a little bit and just gain more base power more or less i believe yeah you just you so eventually resources. you're going to overpower you accrue things. resources are you who resources? Oh, not actual power? Oh, no, no. The levels associated with each character is uh, an indication of how much time you've put into the character, from what I understand. Oh, I see. Okay, then I've misinterpreted that. I do that believe way. you do not get hard stat boosts to a character. But I might be wrong. I haven't actually completed a Shadow Lord's run because it's hard. I turned off their easy combo assist system. I can't say I did very well once I did that. I keep it on because I didn't feel comfortable to turn it off. It's there for people who want to experience the game casually. I wanted to see what it felt like to play the game with full control and how hard doing some of the cool things I've seen people do actually is. It's hard. 
I just take my word for it. It's hard. But like, I definitely, while I complain about the free to play aspects, it's a really compelling loop. There's also some nice, interesting risk reward parts to it. Like for instance, when you send a character on a mission, you can choose to either fight the mission yourself or for some missions, you can deploy them, which means that you get less rewards, but you take no damage for doing so. And it's guaranteed success. And that's very appealing because it means that when you're confident or you don't want to risk anything, you can do that. But you can't solve every encounter like this. Most of the important plot point missions are manual, like require a manual play. Yes. And I will actually emphasize what I just said there, plot points. So this sounds like a weird throwaway roguelite added onto a fighting game with a resource system on top of it. But there is actually a, an amount of plot in this. Characters get plot plot specific missions and character specific plot missions, depending on where you are in the overall campaign. There is quite a bit of production value in this. Not every line is voiced, but there is a narrator. There are certain cutscenes that have narration. Some of the characters actually speak through some of these. All of this is a lot of effort, honestly, for not the main game. And I think that's what sets it apart. I think that this effort totally pays off. I think this is the kind of thing that I want to see in more fighting games. And while I don't think this is the best mode at all, I do think that like this is sufficiently good that... It's probably the only part of Killer Instinct I'm going to play much, and I think it was a good experience. If someone asked me, should I buy Killer Instinct for Shadow Lords mode? I would say, yeah, that's probably a perfectly fine way to spend your time. Especially on a sale. Yes. And we both bought it during a Steam sale at the same time, approximately, right? That's right. I feel like what I got out of it for the amount of money I paid for it is, with Shadow Lords alone, super, super reasonable. And if I ended up playing the game outside of that, it would have been amazing. There is one other mode I want to very quickly talk about which is so we've got shadow lords and we've got shadow lab shadow lab is a fairly simple mode that's not got too many systems going on but basically you train up an ai companion and then you fight other players ai companions so you choose to play shadow lords as a certain character you play against other shadows so you shadow you play shadow lab as a certain character you play against other people's shadows in order to teach your shadow how it should be playing with that character as you play other shadows which are also learning from playing against you and other characters too so everyone's training their own little ai pet and helping train other people's ai pets and it's a pretty good way to sort of slowly ramp yourself up to engaging with online multiplayer because i think a lot of people find it very intimidating to go up against people they might feel uncomfortable and if you're from countries without great internet you might just find lag really frustrating and this is sort of a nice stepping point to dealing with other people online without having to worry about those factors so i know we haven't talked about this as long as perhaps other games but do you have anything you want to add no i think that we covered most of it that shadow lords is really a cool way to reimagine single player as not just this strict story experience but something that's a bit more interactive that has multiple playthrough value that can be a bit too hard to begin with but understanding the player will learn and grow as the experience goes on well then we've only got one more title to talk about the city of final fantasy is the last game on my list and it's a little bit of a tough one to talk about as it sort of defies easy classification. I think 
with current use of language, we would call it an arena fighter. So you have a large 3D space in which characters navigate, and in Dissidia's case, there's a lot of verticality and a lot of flying. Most characters spend most of the time in the air, in fact. So Dissidia is quite different to all these other games in that Dissidia places the most focus on its single-player content. In fact, while multiplayer mode exists based on the designs of the huge amount of RPG systems that exist within the game, it's not really focusing on being a great competitive fighter. So this is your first time with Dissidia. What were your impressions with it and its single-player story mode? I mean getting into the game and in my head going yeah this is a fighting game and then being introduced to the fact that my fighting character will have equipment accessories abilities that i equip before a battle and the fact that it has final fantasy in the name makes me immediately go this is a fighting game right so that was my first reaction to it and even beyond that you don't even have all your combat moves at the start of the game you earn them as well yeah it it isn't a matter of you can choose and customize no you're actually unlocking moves as you level up in the game and that in itself is a really interesting starting point before we get into the deeper structural sense so early on you have a certain amount of movement options and as you level up more those movement options change And this sort of slow release of these movement mechanics helps players not get too overwhelmed. So to start with, you have a homing dash to take you to your opponent. Later in the game, you'll unlock an any-directional dash or omnidirectional dash, which is much harder to use, but once you've understood the game, it's not too difficult to really get the hang of. But at the start, would be make navigation a bit of a nightmare, honestly. So by using its RPG systems, that's sort of its way of creating its tutorial by slowly spacing out its complexity over a long arc. It allows the game to be very deep mechanically, have a lot of intense mechanical interactions while still appealing and like catering for someone new to the series because it's not going to be a game that most people have played before there aren't very many games of its kind and so they definitely understood that they needed to ease players into this experience and you're right just lock it behind progression very smart that said a lot of the things that make Dissidia complicated are thrown at you right out of the gate so for those who are uninitiated the simple things that make Dissidia difficult are that you have two very important numbers bravery and life points life points are fairly simple how you deal damage to life points is by collecting bravery points which you get by hurting someone and then that increases your bravery points and that when you hit with a hp attack you'll deal that much damage to your opponent basically collecting one resource to then use later to actually deal real damage to your opponent more or less basic attacks are generally faster than hp attacks Is that true? Yes, in general, a good way to think about it would be that most basic attacks in many games would be like light attacks. Jabs. And then HP moves are more like very slow, heavy attacks. Yep. So they usually have a bit of visual wind-up, like very few of them are very instant. A few of them can be comboed into directly from a fast brave move but for the most part they're independent separate things also a small nuance worth noting hitting with an hp attack drains you of your bravery that's right you reset back to zero and have to start re-earning it all over again it's relevant because if you get hit by a bravery attack and drop below zero because you got hit because you've been drained of bravery 
you enter a state called uh, actually I for, break break. It's just called break. I want to say like bravery yes. break or something like that. I mean, it might be bravery break, but the text on screen is like break. Yeah, it says break in in big letters. Yes, it, at which point your bravery gain is dramatically reduced, and you effectively can't hurt your opponent for a while. That's right. And there's lots of cool little nuances to the system, but we're not going to focus yeah. too much on that as a, so that we can focus more on the, the single player actual system of the single player campaign. So the single player campaign tries really hard to ape the aesthetic of Final Fantasy to the point that it throws you into some cutscenes. After a brief tutorial, you get thrown onto a world map. And this world map looks suspiciously like the design for the world map in Final Fantasy 7, 8, and 9 on PlayStation 1. The general proportion of characters to the environment the way forests are depicted the game is trying really hard to evoke the sense of classic final fantasy and to make you feel like you're playing more of an rpg than a fighting game from the world map there's a few things you can find that will help you in combat before every dungeon there's usually four items that you can find that will give you a small bonus within the dungeon when you enter a dungeon you are sort of given a chessboard style scenario where you want to try and defeat all the monsters in the dungeon. Usually it's better to do it within a set time limit, but early dungeons don't tend to enforce this too much. If you can kill multiple enemies in a single turn, then you often get more resources afterwards. And you're trying to do these dungeons all on a single life bar. Because of this, enemies tend to be weaker than a normal single opponent would be, so that you can get through multiple of them without too much difficulty, it's probably safe to say. Yep, you are not facing equals, definitely. Yeah, you are not facing equals, you are facing... So, we haven't really said this too clearly, so Final Fantasy Dissidia features heroes and villains from the Final Fantasy series, but for these dungeons, you mostly face off against crystalline crystalline mannequins of these characters, as opposed to their actual forms. Which is mostly so that they don't lose the specialness of these characters when you play them in story mode, and their actual narrative context you're supposed to still feel awe and a bit of fear when you run into an actual character from any of the games and whenever you do run into a character that has that model you are fighting against an equal or often a superior to when you fight them and we mean superior in terms of amount of health they have amount uh the rate at which they generate bravery and you know those kinds of statistics which just impact how quickly you can die and throughout dungeons and throughout combats, you acquire resources such as gill, such as items to craft with that you can later spend in a store to go and buy new weapons and new abilities. There's a strong emphasis on accessories in this game. And accessories have lots of conditional effects too, which leads you to create fighters that are specific for, which are good for very specific situations. Like maybe you get a multiplier to your accessories when you're in the air or on the ground. So there's lots of little fun nuances and builds you can make. A lot of the appeal in the city of single player mode is progressing through the dungeons seeing the story but then also creating these really unique and distinctive builds with the characters listeners who are paying attention may notice something here this really doesn't sound like a fighting it game. It really doesn't sound like a fighting game. The one-to-one conflict, like it has all the great movement and sort of the tight controls and feeling that you might expect from an arena fighting game, but the loop and the incentives for playing it are entirely divorced from, I think, why you would play a fighting game. Yeah. And there's a big target market reason for that. Dissidia is specifically aimed at Final Fantasy fans to the point that there's even a menu-based way to play the game. I was about to bring this up. So... The- 
the I would hazard to say intended way to play the game is called action mode, and they have a way of navigating fights called RPG mode. I thought it was command, command mode, mode, but yeah, RPG mode felt a bit too on the nose. Yeah, we'll we'll call it command mode. And command mode more or less just gives you a few options as to whether you want to approach an enemy, retreat from them, attack them with HP attacks or not. It's fairly limited, but it's pretty interesting given the setup because I can't imagine trying to navigate this sort of high-speed fighting game using a traditional Final Fantasy combat style menu. And they do an admirable job, but it's not the intended way to no, play it. absolutely not. It's more a concession to those who really don't like action games. So I didn't get much into the game. I have a few hours in it. But would you say that it honestly ticks more boxes for the RPG loop itch than the fighting game loop itch of just going through fights and sequences? Absolutely. So between the two PSP Dissidia games, I've invested about 400 hours into them and the two psp to see games are very very similar games they're more an upgrade to the other so a lot of time and i spent maybe three hours of that against other people and i don't feel like i would be enriched by playing against other people more and when you do play against other people you have to de-equip all your equipment because even very small numerical differences in strength and defense can result in huge swings in the numbers and how that plays out in a real match so using all the rpg stuff using all the progression systems in the game mostly results in a worse combat experience for the players if you're playing against someone you're playing against the ai which is also abusing all these factors in different ways or deliberately taking on poor versions of these things a lot of the early enemies you fight have rusted equipment that actually gives them negative scores on several stats to ensure that you actually are overpowered for them yeah dissidia is really an rpg that uses sort of the language and the fighting game skin to manage its combat. But it does feel like an RPG at its core. Yeah, I agree with that, but I still consider it a fighting game, not an RPG. Oh yeah, I would classify it as a fighting game, but it feels like an RPG, if that makes sense. Yes, I would agree there. So yeah, it's a fighting game that uses all the core loops and design philosophies of an RPG, which puts it in a very weird position. Yeah, it is a very fascinating case study. And it's one I love, and actually, so I was very interested in the PS4 Final Fantasy Dissidia NT. And I was very disappointed that it does not have all these things because I'm not entirely sure that the actual fighting system here is strong enough to really support a completely competitive environment. I think that slow grind and that slow level up is something that's really important to making this work. So yeah, do you have anything more to say about Dissidia? Uh, I, I will admit that watching the opening cutscene, it made me smile a lot when when Laguna came on screen. Yeah, this is actually fairly narrative heavy. So the narrative part of the game takes a good 10, 15 hours overall, if you maybe more even if you do all of it. And it plays very heavily on the fact that it is using characters that you should find recognizable from franchises that would be beloved by a lot. And so it's engaging with a lot of loops, a lot of different character dynamics that you may not have seen before. It's got a lot going on, but what I think really makes it stand out, so Dissidia has a lot of space in it, like a lot of game space in it, but it's not safe space to prepare you for fighting another person. It's a safe space to prepare you for playing itself more. And it's a great single player experience. It's one of my favorite on the PSP. And it's really interesting seeing the fighting game genre being used to structure what is more or less a single player experience that has a multiplayer component. But I feel like we've repeated, I've repeated this point half a dozen times now. <laughs> 
it's 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 quite important to drive home. It is a fighting game. It just has a lot of trappings of an RPG, to, to possibly to the point where it doesn't feel like a fighting game anymore. But if you like really look at what its core gameplay is, it is a fighting game. And it's really worth comparing this, like looking back at our previous collection of game modes. Tekken 7 had the treasure battle mode, where you fight battles, you grind in an RPG manner to collect more resources to get new equipment, to get new aesthetic equipment. In Smash Brothers, you could grind a lot to get special moves, to get items to customize your character characters with. In Killer Instinct, the Shadow Lords mode is very much inspired by old RPG game books and choose your own adventure style game books and things. And even Guilty Gear Revelator, which we didn't cover this particular mode, has its own grinding RPG-esque mode where you get and customize characters and buy items for them and things. All these games have used RPG loops to enhance a single player mode to keep you there, to keep you engaged. And Dissidia is more sort of the logical extreme of these single player modes attempts absolutely okay so we talked about a lot of games here we started with tekken 7 pushing like a really strong narrative angle mixing narrative and fighting together guilty gear focused less on that narrative side and really put the emphasis on creating a safe space and building good habits for real fights smash didn't so much focus and more tried a little bit of everything with the overall philosophy that spending more time in the game will help you will help you feel more comfortable overall killer instinct it took upon itself to take from other genres to build its own unique distinctive mode Shadow Lords that creates its own distinctive loops compared to these other games. And Dissidia elevated the single player experience above everything else and possibly at the detriment to the multiplayer experience. Creating a game that uses fighting game aesthetics and language but uses RPG design philosophy. Do you have any wrapping up thoughts on all these titles mixed together? It really feels like we're on the cusp of something. There are so many approaches here and all of them are really really valuable a lot of them do a lot of good things towards making the player more comfortable within a very hard genre to get into i think the reality of it is that nothing a single player experience can do will ever make a player prepared for multiplayer, but hopefully will slowly make it easier, make it less daunting, make someone even possibly excited to try, and maybe even make them understand that they'll fail first, so long as they try. Hmm. And I think a number of these do incorporate that aspect of failing, particularly Killer Instinct, where it states outright during Shadow Lords mode. You're not likely to get it in your first run. And helping train the player to not succeed is probably one of the most important things that these modes could do. The harsh reality of fighting games is that when you play a one-on-one game like that, one of you has to lose. And ideally, you want to be losing 50% of the time, in fact. Losing helps you learn. So, yeah, there you go. And I definitely think looking at this collection, there are lots of different angles, but all of these come with distinct trade-offs. Like, there's no clear, Killer Instinct does the best job of this, Guilty Gear does the best job of this, because by doing these things, they divert resources from other areas, and they push out different players. I really feel like they're all doing something interesting. They've all taken a really interesting approach to this problem, whether or not they've identified it as a problem. And again, yeah, I just hope that we see something out of this. There's a lot of potential and it's a really cool genre. I want more people to play it. Me too. There is too much love about this genre to have it limited by the just intensity people associate with it. And good single player modes really help people get into it. And to our audience listening, do you know any particularly good fighting games for single player content? If you do, I want to ask us questions about any of these games or single player modes in fighting games or any game design topic, feel free to message us via email, 
Facebook, Twitter. You'll find notes on how to do all these things in the show notes. We always love feedback. We always love critique. We always love questions. We really loved hearing your opinions on the show last time and hope to do so again this time. So thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you. The song Random Thoughts by Audio Being are used for the start and end credits here is used under the attribution non-commercial license. Find links to Audio Binger and our social media in the show notes. 